Hey folks, and welcome to the fourth episode of the second season of the Source Code Podcast brought to you by Ninja Jobs. My name is Chris Sanders, and I hope you all had a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday over the past few days. I know I certainly did get to spend a little bit of time with the family. I also made my famous quackaroni and cheese, which is exactly what it sounds like. I uh, smoked a duck and made some macaroni and mixed them together. That's the uh, the simplest version of the recipe, but that's always a good time. I know a lot of people do turkey, and we had some turkey as well, but I really look forward to duck. I don't know why. That's just, uh, just always been something I've loved around Thanksgiving time. So always good stuff there. Now, our guest this week is someone I'm really excited to bring on. And, you know, sometimes just one name will suffice. We have Prince and we have Madonna. And today we have Sergio. Uh, Now, in this case, that's Sergio Caltagirone. And he's a good friend of mine. And he was gracious enough to give us an hour of his time today to talk about really his life and his career and his viewpoints on certain things within our field. And I got to say, Sergio is one of those guys who's really done it. He's been involved with the industry for quite a while, especially in the threat intel side. And he's really a guy who cares about the work he does and wants to do work that matters. And I think you'll hear over the course of our discussion, he'll talk about how doing work that matters really drove his career. Uh, that includes through the DOD, uh, to Microsoft, where he helped lead some of their threat intelligence work, and now at Dragos, where he's uh, working with the industrial control systems, which of course is incredibly important work for a number of reasons. Sergio, my friend, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Now, the last time we were in the same place, I think, was in New Orleans um, earlier this year, uh, 2017. And when I last saw you, weren't you doing some kind of road trip? Yeah, yeah, man. It was it was amazing. So um, I spent five months uh, circumnavigating the uh, continental United States, um, visited 24 states, uh, 24,000 miles. Um, and we, uh, we hit up, it was kind of a road trip that was a mix of um, my work for Dragos doing uh, industrial control system security and uh, and the Global Emancipation Network doing counter human trafficking. And so we were visiting partners and sites um, all around the U.S. and made huge numbers of new friends and opportunities. Um, and so like I, it's, there's really no better way to get out and kind of see your work in a new way than to get out and actually try to you know, meet new people and, and see new things. And so it was amazing, man. I, I, I highly, if anyone has the opportunity, like to just go see the US, it's so big, like, you know, um, and, and it, it's amazing. Like I, it's, yeah, I, I was so, I was so happy that I had the opportunity to do it. Now, one of the things, I guess my visibility into this was, was on Twitter. You kept posting pictures of the different ICS, um, yeah. systems you would run into or the different pieces of infrastructure. So I guess yeah. the first question is, did you like save all those? Are they going to become like a uh-huh. Coffee, coffee table book they or are. something like that. Really? Yeah, Dragos is going to publish a, uh, a photo book. Um, and, uh, you know, us and, and a few other of the of the folks in, in Dragos, um, you know, we, we love industrial control systems um, because it's so integral to our life. And one of the cool things I saw around the U.S. is just like, you know, the um, – uh, every, how close you are to industrial control all day long and how much your life relies on it. And I think that because it's, because it's so integral, you don't see it. And what I wanted to do with my with my photos was take f- pictures of what people drive by normally. You know, it was like a lot of stuff was just pictures from the highway. And, and uh, you know, I would drive by like the Budweiser, you know, production plant and things like that. And I'd take a picture of it because they use, you know, p- you know, production control networks and stuff inside. And it's like you drive by this stuff and it's part of your life and you never know it. And so I, what I wanted to do was highlight just to everybody how important this stuff is to what you use. You know, every food you eat. Um, at least most of it, right? Um, every, <clears throat> excuse me, all the water you drink, 
<clears throat> um, the electricity you use, um, you know, the, the flood control systems in our cities, uh, you know, throughout Florida, you look at the, the flood control in the Everglades is amazing. Um, and I was taking pictures of all the levee systems and, and in, uh, you know, around the Mississippi and New, and New Orleans. And you're like, this stuff is so important to what, how we live. I just wanted to take pictures of the stuff that you see on a regular basis, but you don't really think about it. That's amazing. Now, your family was on this trip with you, right? So what did they think about you, like, pulling over on the side of the road and say, hey, I'm going to oh. take a picture of this SES thing? So so my wife and I pulling this, uh, you know, 32-foot trailer behind us, and I got four kids. And honestly, like, my wife and I split, you know, driving duties. And so um, so she uh, she was taking a lot of photos for me. The kids were making fun of me all the time because as we'd come up, like, over a hill, I'd see something in the distance. I'd be like, ICS, ICS. And the kids were constantly yelling ICS at me. Um <laughs> And we would, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd take, uh, you know, we'd take shots uh, from each other, sometimes reaching over the driver to take something on the other side of the road. You know, I'd say about half the photos turned out to something uh, uh, usable, but um, but it was it was fun and we all got into it. Like even the kids started like learning about like levy control systems and, and how power distribution works. And we'd look at transformers and we'd talk about, um, you know, all how, how high voltage lines, you know, how they how they transfer electricity and all this cool stuff. So it was amazing for all of us to kind of get involved. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned Dragos, and I guess for the people who don't know you, tell me a little bit about kind of what Dragos is and what your role there is. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a new company, right? We've only been around a little over a year. Um, but, you know, the ideas have been around for a long time. And, and so it's a, a company founded by um, Rob, Justin, and John. And uh, most people know Rob Lee's uh, kind of a Twitterati. And... Um, and so it's it's really a the, the core element is it's it's an ecosystem right so it's a it's a platform uh, it's services and it's and it's intelligence all around industrial control system threats and that's all we do we don't do IT we don't do you know um, we don't do your traditional like threat work um, it's only focused on what the impact to industrial control systems is so um, and that's very unique right we're the only company in the U S that really has that one and only focus and we bring to bear all of these amazing engineers. Um, you know, we have over 200 years of experience of in industrial control systems inside the company. Um, and so we're, you know, so what we, I mean, honestly, we love it, right? It's a huge passion. Our tagline is, you know, kind of, kind of silly and unique, but, but we love it. Everyone loves it. We could just say we, we safeguard civilization, right? Because if this stuff breaks down, you're, you're searing, you know, you're going to see some serious, you know, civilization issues, right? Some, you know, breakdown of civil society if water and power don't come back up pretty quickly. <clears throat> so we take our job very seriously. It's, um, Honestly, it's a huge passion project for us all. So um, I am super proud to be part of the company. I am the director of Threat Intel um, and, and analytics. And so my job is to, you know, find bad guys. Actually, most of the time, I, <clears throat> I just run an awesome team, right? So most of my time is just helping my team be the best they can, um, you know, finding bad guys, which we do. We, we track about five specific industrial control system threats, uh, th you know, threat groups um, that are really just all they do is engineer their their attacks against industrial control systems. Um, and then, uh, you know, we get that intelligence out to customers. And then we the cool thing that we do is we don't do indicators. Right. It's like um, <clears throat> it's a thing I brought from Microsoft. Excuse me. I fried my throat today. <clears> throat> Um, which is we don't really focus on indicators. We focus on behaviors, right? So um, our our intelligence feeds our platform in like, you know, how do bad guys operate, right? It's like they could change their malware today. They can recompile it. The hash can go bad, right? They can now they can move their covert, you know, their covert channels um, over, you know, ICMP versus DNS or whatever. So what we're doing is we're we're really looking for behaviors, and we use threat intelligence to support that, right? Because if you understand what the bad guys are doing, you better understand the behaviors that they're using. 
And so for us, it's all about codifying what we like to say is codifying the intelligence of analysts, right? Is analysts see this stuff, these behaviors, they understand them and getting the systems to be able to detect those. Um, and then that way it makes it really hard, right? That whole pyramid of pain idea is move all the way up to the top. Um, and so that's what we do. So Amazing. Now, that's where you are now. So let's take it back and let's work our way forward. So where uh, where do you call home? Where were you raised? Where did you grow up? Yeah. Uh, so I lived in uh, so a little town called Battleground, Washington, um, tiny town. I don't even know how many people are in it now. Uh, when I was growing up, it was like 10,000. Um, and uh, just outside, so just north of Portland, Oregon, so just on the other side of the river in Washington State. And, um, and yeah, I grew up there. I went, to, uh, I went to the University of Portland in Portland, Oregon, so a small Catholic university. I think there were 2,500 students uh, in the university. Um, it's a liberal arts college. I uh, did computer science there, so doing computer science at a liberal arts college, um, which was actually awesome. Uh, it was half my time was in the math department, half my time was in the engineering department, and the other time was, you know, I have also a degree in theology, um, and so that was fun. And honestly, that's added a lot to my career. Just critical thinking skills. I learned how to write uh, in theology. Um, yeah. I had to take a bunch of philosophy. Um, so I would say that I I do counsel I do counsel um, high schoolers. Uh, as I mentor them, like I would recommend getting a bachelor's degree at a liberal arts college and then getting your graduate degree in a more engineering focused school, um, because I, I think that the, a well-rounded bachelor's degree will lead you, you know, especially in the science field, will lead you to, to pretty good success. Mm -hmm. So I really like getting all of those skills, uh, you know, from from kind of that background. And that was that was right. a lot of fun. And now the awesome part is I'm working with my alma mater. Um, we're hosting two um, two student projects for the Global Emancipation Network. So they're working on counterhuman trafficking. Wow. Um, and so we're also working with Loyola University and other Catholic universities. So we've gotten into this like network of Catholic universities because you know they have this huge mission of of service, faith, and knowledge, right? Um, and so it's really cool that these these Jesuit universities really want to get involved in 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 technical work and they want to get their science students involved in technical work that has a real, you know, human and faith and service component to it. And so obviously working human trafficking has been really positive and it's a, a great opportunity for me to work with my alma mater plus with all these other, you know, these really awesome universities. Yeah. Now, growing up in, in Battleground, was that kind of the local university? Was that the place most people went? No, no, um, not at all. Um, it was a private university. It was somewhat expensive. Um, I paid for it by um, uh, honestly like student loans, and then I um, worked at my parents' restaurant. My my parents had a uh, my parents had a Sicilian restaurant um, in the small town, um, which did really well. And I did everything right. I started by dishwashing. I waited tables, all that stuff. So I worked there for like ten years. Wow. Um, yeah, I would never wish the restaurant business on my worst enemy. Um, <laughs> But it's uh, it is fun and it's exciting. But you know the hours are long, seven in the morning to eleven at night. You know, well, stuff it's, like it's, that. it's interesting too because you know I, I think a lot of people who there's a family restaurant and they work at it when they're young. I don't know what the statistics are, but I would imagine a, a large percentage of those would go on to work in that restaurant and carry that on. But it sounds like you yep. knew pretty early you didn't want to do that. No, no. And my parents didn't want it to be a lifelong thing either for them. You know, so my dad actually was a school psychologist um, and so an educational psychologist. And so he wanted to go back to work. Um, and my mom actually uh, my mom was actually a, a systems en engineer, you know, so she worked at Apple and Tandem back in the very early 80s. And, and so they both kind of and now she's actually doing now she's actually doing uh, title reading programs. Um, and so uh, and so she's doing reading tutoring and um, they wanted to go back and do something else in their life. Um, the restaurant restaurant business is all consuming. And so um, it was really good. So they did it. They did what they wanted and then they kind of moved on. So interesting. So it sounds like I mean, they they 
from a pretty early age, you had exposure to people who were knowledgeable about engineering and, and technology and kind of yep. matters of the mind and things like that. So did they, I mean, I guess how early on did you get interested in, in, you know, computers and technology and all that? I don't know. I've, I've been exposed to it. Like, so, you know, I'm 37 and, um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm the first generation that's kind of lived around it most of my life, right? I'm part of the Nintendo generation, um, where I kind of grew up with a Nintendo, um, and uh, but I actually had it much earlier because my mom worked for these, you know, as a systems engineer for for these tech companies. And so we always had a computer in our house. Right. So I grew up with an Apple II. Um, she worked for Apple and, and stuff like that. So we kind of always had Apple products when I was younger. And um, and so I was programming on Apple computers early on. And so I don't know. I just I guess I always kind of was surrounded by by it. And my parents always wanted me to be exposed to it because obviously their backgrounds were like, you know, it's important. And um Interestingly, um, like I, so when I was going to college, um, I had I, I, so I was also really involved in in I was a semi-professional lighting designer, theatrical lighting designer. Um, and uh, I really loved theatrical lighting design. And it was kind of some somewhat of I was actually probably going to go into it. Um, and my dad counseled me and he said, you know, I think you should go do computer science. And and he said, you know, it's um, it's a great career field. You know, it's kind of just starting um, and uh, or, or at least from a, you know, from a broad based perspective, it's been around for a long time. But just from a you know broadly, uh, you know, kind of accessible perspective, it's here. And. Um, and he said, you know, so computers are being used now to basically manage all the lighting systems. And I was like, yes. And and so it's like, you know, you can have an amazing career and probably even a better career if if that's what you do. And so um, and so basically he talked me into doing computer science um, and which was great. And honestly, like, you know, I uh, I, I, I highly value his counsel and, and his wisdom. Um, and I'm really glad he did that. And, uh, you know, while I still love lighting design and I still get into it a little bit here and there. But um, uh, but yeah, the uh, but that's kind of how I how I got into it. Right. My career is my career and background is more of a. Uh, a series of unfortunate events, if you'll uh, if you'll even call it that way, uh, you know, a, a path a path least traveled. So yeah, well, now what kind of student were you like in high school? Were you like a, a good student? Were you kind of nerdy? Were you really studious, or did you not care at all? I didn't like high school very much, um, and I had a great honestly, I had a great time in high school. Right, I had I had a you know great social life. I hung out in the theater a lot, um, so I was a total theater nerd and geek. Right, so everyone in the podcast probably knows those people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I was pretty much, you know, I don't know, I, I graduated with a high GPA, if you can call that from, a, you know, whatever that is from a public high school. Um, you know, I, I think they're all grade inflated, so I'm not really sure how to how to assess my background there. Um, I have an interesting story there about that, which is uh, I like to rib I like to rib him too so, all the time. So maybe I, I won't mention him publicly, but um, so I had a, an amazing an amazing advisor in college, right? So um, I was a I was a mediocre yeah I would say I was a me, I, I, not mediocre I was a average student right in high mm -hmm. school, um, I, and so I went I went and I met with my advisor for the first time going to college, and I was going into you know so I declared computer science. So I meet with my computer science advisor, who's the chair of the department, and um, and he and he looks at my my SAT scores. He looks at my GPA from high school. He looks at my I think I had to submit like my senior year um, uh, record as well. So he looks at all my class my class scores, and um, and he tells me he's like, "Your math isn't strong enough. You're not going to survive in this field." Huh. Um, that is like the first, like, I don't know, five minutes of our conversation. Um, and, and, you know, uh, and he's an amazing guy and just, he really is super special, but he's, he's very blunt. Right. Um, and, 
Um, anyway, so I, I basically left that meeting going, yeah, because honestly, my math, my math sucks. It's uh-huh. not great, right? And it, it is not a not an area I, I, I can do it definitely, and I get by. Um, I, I don't have to rely on a calculator all the time, but um, definitely not my strong suit, right? And so, um, so I left that meeting pretty scared, right, as to what I was going to go do, and um, and this is a you know this is a guy who who he was a student of um, uh, of some pretty amazing. Um, pretty amazing computer scientists and uh, at Carnegie Mellon, um, you know, kind of in the 60s and 70s and like the core, fe- you know, core mathematical fields of, of computer science. And so I was really afraid and I did it in spite of him. Right. Honestly. And I struggled. Right. Um, 400 level statistics is not easy. Um, I got a C. Right. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm let's put it this way. It's the proudest I've ever been for a C in my life. <laughs> um, I worked my butt off for that C, and I'm super happy I did it. Because well, C, honestly, C means continue, right? It's not an S. Yeah. So that's, that's big. And, and I'm happy, right? And it was it was a senior level, you know, a senior senior level course. 400 level statistics is not simple, right? This isn't like you know, let's let's just learn about how to count things, right? Um, it's like how do you prove you know the theorems and statistics? And so, um, and I got a C, so I'm super happy with that, in which I just got through, right? Um, and uh, so I would say that I, I excelled in certain areas of computer science and in my background, right? I also got a degree in theology. I struggled in certain classes there. You know, my writing was not as strong as it should have been, um, you know, going into that field. Um, that's a huge critical thinking and, and you know, writing, writing, writing field. And, um, and so I had to learn how to write, right? I mean, my first paper in college, I got back and it was, it was like, you need to do much better than this, right? Um, and I was honestly fortunate to have teachers who were willing to tell me that. And I think that I'm also blessed with a work ethic from my parents that said, it's okay if things are hard, um, that's not, you're not going to succeed at everything, but most things you'll succeed at if you can work hard enough and you may not be the best at it, but you can damn well work harder than everyone else. And I think that's what I got from my parents, right? Was, you know, I, I grew up in the restaurant industry, which is a work your ass off industry. And I, I, I learned from them, like, that's just what you do. You know, some weeks you're really scared because there's competition opening down the line and you may not be the best, you know, best, best restaurant, but damn well, you're going to work hard at it and you'll probably succeed. You know, and um, and so that's kind of what I brought with it. So, no, I was a, you know, overall, I would say I was a, an average level student learning how to write in college, learning how to do math in college and, mm-hmm. you know, made my way through it. I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy on this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals, and that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization, you're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. I think you'll like what you see. Let's get back to Sergio. Now, tell me, you got degrees, I mean, you, you focus on computer science, but also theology. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, was there a point where you considered that you may go into the clergy or what made you want to go for that kind of second, um, second kind of track of knowledge? 
Yeah. Um, so theology had always interested me. Um, I think when I was really young, my father and mother, um, you know, introduced me to a whole bunch of series of, of learnings. Obviously, my father has um, both a, a bachelor's and a master's degree in, in philosophy, um, as well as, as psychology. Um, and he got a, another master's degree in psychology. And so um, he was constantly exposing me to philosophy. Um, I was reading, you know, Hume and um, whole bunch of Locke, and you know, he really loved, you know, he really loved the English and Scottish philosophers and the Enlightenment period, um, and really kind of exposing me to a lot of Enlightenment ideas, and um, and then I was as I was going on, you know, I, I started seeing, you know, other things. So I start I started reading like Thomas Merton and um, and some more I would say theological philosophers, and who were kind of asking the the really hard questions about life, right? Which is not just how do we think, but why do we think, and why are we here, and and answering the questions of evil, you know, which I still struggle with. I still think that's the most fascinating question in my life is the problem of evil. I face it on a daily basis. Why do people do the things that they do and why do we have this? And so I think I grew up with a strong a strong component of asking hard questions and, and theology seemed to be asking some very difficult questions as to why do we believe, right? Um, you know, if we can't prove that God exists, you know, why, why, why do we, why do we even worry about it? Um, and, uh, and so I think that's, it's just that line of critical thinking really got me excited. And so when I got to a, honestly, a Catholic university um, who prizes critical thinking, right? The Jesuits are very proud of their, their long history of crit critical thinking. Um, you know, uh, I took classes from, you know, um, Protestant ministers and, and from, you know, retired nuns and, and this huge variety of people. Um, and uh, um, I don't know, I just, I felt like it was something that I really enjoyed and I had the opportunity, and so I only had to take, like, I think I had to take four or five more courses um, to do a theology degree, and it was really fascinating. And so I took classes in world world religions, I took classes in philo philosophical theology, so, you know, what have philosophers written about theology and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, it's like the watchmakers, you know, looking at things like um, the watchmakers analogy and things like that, and why these philosophical theological arguments are made and kind of breaking them down. Um, so I don't know. It was just something that really excited me, and it's something that I still do. I read, I read a lot of philosophy and theology on a regular basis. So that's awesome. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned you know your dad and, and his you know kind of studying both psychology and philosophy. And I, and I don't think I mean I I study psychology now, and it's one of those things where when I started, I didn't realize how close the ties were. And I don't think most people do that. That really what we think of as psychology now evolved from philosophy. Yeah, and there's very few there are very few psychological concepts that you can get into where you don't eventually like get into philosophy. Well, every um, and, field, right? Yeah. Technically, every field stems from philosophy, right? It's just you got to go work your way back a little bit. Yeah, so. and it, it's a fascinating thing. And I think if more people, especially in, in the field we work in, in cybersecurity, opened up their mind to that, I think it would promote different and unique ways of, of thinking. And really, I mean, like I said, I, I focused on psychology, and I really kind of only skimmed the surface of philosophy. But it's, it's, it's a mind-blowing thing to really consider some of these deeper concepts and you mentioned one that really hit a nerve with me was you know what what is it what is evil and what mm -hmm. what is good and what is bad and <clears throat> i know the example i've given to people in the past is you know we you know we have this thing in in the u.s right now where you know china's hacking into things and china yep. is bad and all this that and the other and you know the question i pose to them is okay well china has to feed a billion people and if china hacks in to an agriculture company and steals a formula yep. for something that allows them to make their crops more resistant and feed more people and save more lives is that evil and, and I would have a hard time saying it is, um, but a lot of people would still want to stop that from occurring. So it, when you get into those moral questions, I think it, um, I don't know, I think there's very much a, a sincere value to asking those questions and thinking about them and talking about those with other smart people. 
And so I, I like to take contrarian perspectives. Um, I don't like to play the devil's advocate. I don't like that term. Um, I think that's a valuable exercise, but I think that that you need to have um, some some uh, intellectual accuracy in that it's it's okay to ask a contrary question just to I you know kind of explore the space. But I like to prov- I like to I like to <clears throat> kind of take more contra- I would say more. Um, uh, 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 supported contrarian views, right? Which is okay. Well, let's let's take a view that we can actually intellectually support, and let's kind of just let's kind of work it out, right? And say, well, what part of this is right and what part of this is wrong, and help measure our thinking in other areas. And um, I think I get that a lot from from my intellect, you know, from my uh, enlightenment kind of background of philosophy, which was that's what you did, right? That you know, smart people got it. You know, smart people came around to in in a bar not just to laugh but to argue with each other, and that was a fun time. And you know, if anyone knows Rob Lee and I, like we go at it like cats and dogs, right? We are best of friends, but man, will we uh, will rip each other apart for two hours, and we we will walk away and just laugh because we had so much fun. Um, and I want more of that, right? I want more of that in our community and in infosec and honestly everywhere, right? I think we need we need more we need we need more people to argue um, smart ideas um, and supported positions, um, but they may not be the right position, right? It's okay not to be right. It's okay that you posit an idea and only part of your idea is correct, right? You don't have to be completely correct. Um, And we can merge parts of ideas. um, And that's the history of of thinking and good ideas, right? It's like now nobody had all of the right ideas, but damn it, some people had some parts of really good things. Um, Hume wasn't right about everything, but dang it, he had some really smart ideas, and and we've you know incorporated a lot of that into our society. And so um, I think that that's what we need to do in, in all of our fields. You know, you're right, and and I think one of the things too, and in our field, I think people are too quick to when they hear an idea, the first thing they look to is how can I disprove that. Right, and that's kind of a very scientific thing—the the thought of like falsifying uh, ideas to some degree. But also, it, it loses the nuance in that you know, if you look across history and look at people with opposing ideas, what you generally find is that neither person was fully right, and the truth lied somewhere yep. in the middle. Or, or mm-hmm. we have these shades of gray, and we seem to have lost that. And 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 those yep. shades of gray and how we synthesize these ideas is critically important. Yeah, yeah. It's not about select. The thing about argument is it's never about selecting the the winner. Right. It's always about exploring towards an idea. And so I think that that's what people what most people mistake in argument. It's not about winning. Right. It's about recognizing where the good and the bad is and that there's really a spectrum there. Right. And I think that's where we need to be. Let's talk about, you know, after college. Um, I know you had a couple of interesting stops there. uh, But what was what was kind of your first out of college big boy job, so to speak? Yeah. So um, when I when I got done with my bachelor's degree, I knew I didn't want to be a programmer my whole life um, because at that point, that's what you did with a computer science degree is you go and you go be a programmer. Um, And so I went and did my master's degree and um, that's how I fell into InfoSec. So, excuse me, one day in my senior year, I was uh, I think it was like about this time. I was um, I was approached by another one of my my advisors at my undergrad who was like, hey, there's this brand new program in cybersecurity. And it's being funded by the U.S. government. And it was the Scholarship for Service or the CyberCorps program. And this was the first, I think it was the first or maybe second year it was running. And he said, there's spots open. Nobody's applying for the program, right? It wasn't really well, you know, uh, really well known. And so um, I... um, uh, so I looked at it and I didn't know anything about cybersecurity very much at that point. And, uh, I, I thought it was all, I thought it was all encryption and I was like, well, I'm not, my math is not strong enough to go into cryptography. So I went to Powell's bookstore, which is the, um, the largest independent bookstore in the U S it's in, it's in Portland. So anyone who goes to Portland needs to visit Powell's. It's an amazing experience. Um, 
And I went to Powell's and they have a specific, they have an entire block of just technical books. They have an entire technical bookstore. And I went there and I went to the cybersecurity section. And at that point, this was in 2004, um, there weren't almost, there were very few books, you know, out there on it. Um, there was Stephen Northcutt's book and I remember that, getting that book and I remember um, Richard Baitlick's book, um, you know, the Tower of Network Monitoring and, and a few others. There was the big, big, blue, uh, B, what's called the big blue book of security, mm-hmm. uh, of information security and stuff, um, which are all the essays um, that are really fascinating to read. And um, I, I bought literally every book. This is funny to say. I bought every book in that bookstore on cybersecurity. And I think it was like maybe nine. <laughs> one of the one of the books I got was uh, was the cuckoo's egg, um, yeah. and so I, I bought like I I have them still. It's like my nine books, and it's like this is what started me in in my career, and um, and so I read these books, and I and I spent like a long I spent my holiday weekend reading them, and um, I I loved it. I thought it was amazing, and the cuckoo's egg in particular was like that's what I want to do. I read it, and it was like I had this epiphany. It's like that's what I want to do, and. Um, I want to go. I want to go hunt hackers. And so uh, I called my advisor and I was like, "Hey, so could you could you call the University of Idaho, which is who he was talking to me about, and and see if they're they still have openings?" So I get a call back like an hour later from the dean of the department and uh, saying, "Hey, I hear you're interested in in coming over." And I was like, "Yeah." And so we had like this forty five minute interview, and he's like, "Okay, well you're 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 accepted. You can come in. I'll send you the paperwork." Like, oh, okay. Um, so uh, so I I had this full ride scholarship. For a graduate degree um, to the University of Idaho for InfoSec, and <clears throat> and so I still didn't really know what 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 I was doing, but I knew that it felt it felt right. So I went to the University of Idaho, <clears throat> and uh, that was a lot of fun. I met at that point Deb Frinke, um, and Deb is I, I have to proudly say that um, I was one of her grad students. Um, I was one of the few grad students who survived Deb. Um, not many people <laughs> do. Um, she is a she is absolutely ruthless uh, when it comes to you know achieving and doing the right thing and and um, I mean my God you bring your research to her and it feels like you didn't do anything at all um, you know and she but I mean she is like the like I said the people in my life are the ones who told me what I needed to hear right not the ones who made me feel good and I really appreciate those people and and so she uh, you know so she's now the director of research at the NSA. And we still have a really great personal relationship and, and we talk a lot and we just share ideas a lot. And and um, and so uh, she was a, another mentor in my life. And so, you know, when I um, uh, when I graduated from the, the, the program, um, I had two job offers. Uh, I had a job offer as a as a research scientist at Pacific Northwest National Labs um, to do uh, cybersecurity research. Um, and I had a job offer at uh, the Department of Defense. Um, and, uh, you know, like the DOD, um, I didn't really know what I was getting into there. It was kind of like this weird thing. And I was like, I don't know. But what I did know was that in cybersecurity, what I did recognize very early on was that cybersecurity is really an operational problem um, and that there are theoretics around it, right, around um, access control. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's some really interesting things theory behind what we do, but most of what we do is operational. And so I, I knew that I would never, I love research, I love thinking, I love ideas, but I knew I would never be good at research if I didn't have operational experience, if I didn't really understand the problem. And so I, both offers were pretty much equivalent. The PNNL gig would have been awesome. I would have been probably a researcher for my whole life. But um, I decided I needed to go do operations. So I went to DOD and uh, I joined them and um you know, uh, like six months after I got there, um, I learned that they were working on the, you know, these massive breaches and big hacking problems that they were having. And I was like, 
finally I found my place. So um, six months into my job there, I left my job there and went to another job there. Luckily, um, I was kind of like in an inter- internship program, so I got to move around a bit. And, um, and that's where I stayed. Um, so technically I was supposed to be in an internship program for two years, but I really only had one job and, uh, and that was in 2005. Um, and, um, and, uh, and so, yeah, we're, um, and so that was kind of it. And I, and I, and I got to hunt hackers for DOD for, I was there for nine years and, um, I had a lot of fun, right? I literally was exposed to the best. Um, you know, and I got exposed to some of the, um, offensive work of the Department of Defense, uh, some of the cyber offense. Um, I was exposed to obviously a ton of defense. Um, I got exposed to international partners and what it, you know, how cybersecurity works internationally. Um, I did, I did some policy work there as well. Um, and so honestly it gave me a huge experience and I honestly don't think if anyone joined, um, the, the government now and DOD now you would have that same breadth of experience. Um, I would say I joined in a very, very, I was lucky to join at the right time when there weren't many people doing it and they need, they have so much work to be done that you had to kind of be a journeyman, um, in all of the parts of cybersecurity and infosec. And so I got experience into policy, into offensive work, into defensive work, into network monitoring, into host monitoring, into malware and, you know, analysis. And I kind of had to do it all. And so, um, and so that was amazing. And, uh, and so, um, I also basically at that point started building the diamond model, mm-hmm. um, which is the ideas of, you know, well, how do we do our work here and why are we doing it? And that kind of comes back to my backgrounds and like thinking and stuff and like coming up with like asking yourself the question of why, why, how do you do what you do? Right. And that's a very critical question. Right. Which is what makes what I do work? Why, you know, and um, and why is it that way? And so um, I started asking that question with Chris and, and with Andy. Um, and there was a number of people who can't be named on that paper who uh, who you know who you are, um, who, who did it, you know, contributed amazing, amazing work to, to it. And we're um, and it just kind of started. Right. It was like 2000. I think it was 2006. We sat down in a whiteboard and was like. So we're doing the thing. We're hunting all these hackers. We're actually being very successful, more successful than anyone knew we could be at it. Um, you know, we were briefing, you know, very, very high level government and you know, U.S. and international partners with this stuff. And, um, and people were very happy with what we did. And we just asked the question, well, why does this work? Um, and we started just asking that question. And it was a wor- it was a labor of love over, you know, we released it in 2013. But, you know, that's, it's a long time for ideas to be percolating. We worked on that model for a long time. And um, I'm very proud to say I think it's a great piece of work. I think it'll stand the test of time because we worked on it for a long time and we tested mm-hmm. it constantly, right? We were constantly testing the idea. Um, and so it was constant, you know, it started off as a triangle um, and then we, we grew it into a diamond. It was actually a, it started off as a box and then we rotated it 90 degrees because I don't know, somebody who was better at marketing than I said, hey, it should be a diamond and that's cool. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, that's know, that's we, the moment right there. That's that's when you drop the <laughs> duh from the Facebook and it's just Facebook. I mean, that's when it that's when you took off. I'm sure. Yeah, it, exactly. It's the right naming sometimes. Right. And hey, you know, I got everyone gives that gives marketing crap, but it works. Um, and sometimes it is the right thing. And so. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of that DOD work of like working with people who like we were all like, you know, so there were certain people in the world, right? There was Richard Baitlick and and so off who, who were kind of like luminaries in the field, Stephen Northcutt. 
Um, but honestly, nobody was doing this, right? I mean, we weren't, we didn't even call it hunting. Like that term wasn't until very, very recently, right? I mean, you know, I think Richard Baitleg was the first to say it publicly, maybe back in 2009. Um, but back in 2005, nobody knew what we were doing. I mean, heck, I don't even remember what my job title was. It wasn't anything like yeah. that, right? Well, no, I mean, I, I, I was in, I think our DOD time overlapped at least a little bit. And I, and I remember it was kind of before the term hunting was popular. And, and at the time, I would have just called that like what I do for a living, right? Like yeah. I, I was an analyst and this is the analyst yeah. work I did. So that's... Uh, um, it's funny to look at it with that kind of perspective, but, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, it's interesting. I know my, my first exposure to the diamond model, I was still at DOD at the time and someone came and said, Hey, have you read this paper? And I haven't yet. And they're like, Oh, well, you're quoted in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm definitely going to read it now, which is if anyone is, is listening to this podcast and, and they say, you know, how can you make for sure Chris reads something? It's, it's put his quote in it. Uh, <laughs> But but I read it and so I'm, I already liked it before I read it. Uh, but then I <laughs> but then I really liked it and uh, it's something that uh, I do believe I agree with you that, that will stand the test of time and it's a useful. I think I mean I think you know you kind of mentioned the operational aspect of, of what we do and and you know we're kind of a field grounded in operations, but that also hurts us in some ways where we need more theory to back things if nothing else because it's easier to, as a teaching model to teach people yep. how to do this work and and yep. the diamond model is certainly one of those things and certainly i believe it'll stand the test of time um in that regard yep I think that's and that's why we did it right is is that we were growing right initially when i joined dod um uh we were we were an office of three um <laughs> and uh <laughs> that was it's really sad now that i look back at it kind of scary um we were in office of three we grew to five i think in our first year uh maybe six um and then like we blew up right and then it became like 200 right um and of course the challenge was that we were bringing in people who had no background and um and some people did um some people came from a more traditional technology background some people were more traditional intelligence analysts um you know we other people had other backgrounds and uh, even even people from the offensive side right were joining us and and but that Honestly, just just because you understand how hackers work does not mean you understand how to track them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these are, you know, and they are complementary, but they are definitely not one and the same. You know, you can't take a defensive person and plug them into the offensive space. You can't take an offensive person and plug them into the defensive space, right? Um, and so, and so there is, you know, so we had to do a bunch of teaching, and a lot of it came down to how do we bring people up, right? And so, uh, really, the diamond model came down to. It was a great intellectual exercise for us, but really the entire purpose of it is just to help the community get better. Um, and how do we get great people to be even greater? And how do we bring people who are brand new into it? How do we make it so that they don't have to relearn everything that we've been, you know, that we had to learn? So yeah, absolutely. Well, I know I'm uh, maybe. Skipping a, a couple steps here, but I'd like to talk about your time at, at, at Microsoft. Um, and I know, I know for me, when I left the DoD and started doing, you know, more public type work, it was really great because like I could come home at the end of my day and talk to my wife about what I did at work that day, which was, which was nice not to have to keep it all bottled into that regard. But that, yeah. uh, that was a big part of it for me. Um, I guess the interesting thing for you, I guess, is, I don't know if this was a big dynamic at the time, but your mom had worked for Apple and, and you were going to work <laughs> for Microsoft. So did that ever come up in like Thanksgiving? Oh my dinners? God. Yeah. So, um, no, it was it was more of a question of, you know, so I grew up in InfoSec when Microsoft was having a tough time. I like to say that. And everyone knows what that time is. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, when when everyone bemoaned Microsoft products and honestly, they and they will, you know, and especially coming as as an ex ex Microsofty, um, you know, I will say that the entire company accepts that. Right. It's like, yeah, that that was bad. And they will they're working their ass off right now to make sure that they don't do that um, again. And um, and so when I joined uh, and I told my mom that I was going to join, um, my mom told me I thought you hated them. Um, 
And uh, and that was true, right? But and here's the thing: when I joined Microsoft, um, when I joined Microsoft, I uh, I couldn't even really tell people what I did because even at that time at Microsoft, just like a lot of the other companies, Google and Apple and Amazon and stuff, um, the other really big kind of services IT, you know, kind of service companies um, and products companies, they um, they didn't really talk about hackers. Um, security was always a bad story for them. Um, they and they honestly, these companies don't. Don't don't fight for news headlines, right? They fight against news headlines. They don't want to be in the news, right? Um, and so um, at that point, everyone who is working in those big big product companies uh, with me, who are all really good friends of mine now, you know, across the spectrum, um, you know, none of us could really talk about what we did, right? Apple didn't have their very first like real security presentation until like two years ago. Um, and Google, you know, was just a little bit before that. Of course, they had the, the Aurora event where they came out publicly and talked a little bit about stuff. But if you look at it, they pretty much went quiet after that. Um, you know, and they did a few little things uh, like, you know, Gmail popped up that little banner saying, you know, you've been hacked and all that stuff. And they, they I would say they toyed around uh, in the in in that space, but never really kind of went went at it publicly. And so when I joined Microsoft, it was all still very hush hush. Right. I couldn't really talk about what I did and what we did there. We did, you know, we did threat hunting. Oh, my God. What is that? Oh, my God. There's hackers in hackers using Microsoft products, right? Again, you know, hackers who are attacking Microsoft products and services and going through Google and, you know, using Amazon AWS and all this stuff. Like we didn't want to do that, right? First, first of all, we would, if we called out Google, right, that'd be bad, right? I mean, you know, Microsoft and Google obviously are competitors in certain spaces, but they also work together in certain spaces. So, you know, you don't want to burn bridges where you don't need to, right? And same thing with AWS and so forth. And so, um, especially in the security space, nobody wants to like, you know, nobody in those companies want to kill each other in the security space. It's, it's a bad day for everybody. So, so when I started Microsoft, I couldn't really tell people what I did. I mean, I told my family a little bit, but really it, it had to be really quiet. And most of what I did, it was a tiny group inside Microsoft that only knew what we did. Um, in fact, yeah, so even at Microsoft, we were super quiet. And it wasn't until, so we went through a whole bunch of fun stuff at Microsoft, threat hunting, right? And, um, and man, we were, you know, it was a small team and, and we were pretty darn good at it. And, uh, and we obviously worked across the industry. That's one thing people don't realize is that, you know, that, that, these big companies, they aren't they aren't doing this by themselves, right? They are doing it because they work, you know, a lot of the reason why you're so they're so good at what they do is because they work so closely with the other teams and the other companies. And and they're not very competitive, right, with the other companies. In fact, they're not in security. And so they will work and they will share stuff that you don't even think that they would share, right? It's not customer data, but it's threat data. And um and so uh, you know, it's it's an amazing, amazing opportunity to see how how good companies how good how basically companies who care about security how well they can work together and um and i think it's a model i'm writing a paper on it should be out soon but i'm writing a paper basically on like uh, my experience over the last you know 15 years in cybersecurity, working with these very you know companies that, that are organizations that are more mature than almost anyone else um basically these lessons learned of here's what great security organizations do um and here's how you can here's kind of some ideas of how you can how you can do it and so, um, and it's not prescriptive. It's kind of more of like, here's kind of what they do. And you may not be able to do this too, but here's, you know, here's kind of a, a goal to achieve. And so some ideas, right, were like, work together, right? Like, like, don't, you know, be open with, you know, make friends and be open with them, right? Um, you're going to get burned, but that's okay, right? And, and it's kind of like those very simple ideas that people talk about, um, but it's very hard for people to actually live. And I think that's the difference is that these ideas 
can't just be platitudes. Um, you have to realize them and you have to live them. Um, and if you're too afraid, you're never going to be great. And you have to get rid of the, you have to be, you have to be unafraid in, in InfoSec. Um, and I think that's one thing that we talk about, you know, that this whole FUD cycle that kills us a lot is about, right? And that's something that Microsoft stopped doing, right? I would say that they stopped fearing hackers and start, you know, and started loving the bomb, right? And um, and I think that's kind of what it comes down to is you have to accept nor you have to accept the new normal, right? Which is you're gonna get hacked, your friends are gonna get hacked, everyone's gonna get hacked, live with it, right? Let's move on. Let's stop worrying about that. Um, and let's let's instead make ourselves stronger and not weaker. Let's not let's talk about what we do. Let's not hide it. You know, and these are things that when I when I uh, left Microsoft now, obviously, Microsoft's doing blog posts. Oh, my God, our first blog post. You want to talk about how difficult that is right, <laughs> to get through, you know, to get through like this is a major company who doesn't want to generate news cycles. And we're about to start talking about hackers, you know, outside of like the whole cybercrime space. Right. But like, you know, like serious hacking, like, you know, um, and uh, and it, it was a big, big deal. And so coming up publicly. And so one of the big shifts in Microsoft was this idea that, hey, this is important to us and this is how we do it. We should make everybody great at doing this. And so if we're having challenges, if Microsoft can't hunt well, that means other people can't hunt well too. And that's not good, right? If people can't secure, and this, this applies to all the major products, right? If people can't secure Microsoft products, how are they, why are they ever going to use them in the future? And so Microsoft came to the realization that security has to be part of it. We want our products to be secure and secureable and defendable, right, while you're using them. And so all of the challenges we were having as defenders and hunters for Microsoft, um, we wanted to basically make our products better, right? And so if we were having problems, we basically get, went to the product teams and we're like, it needs to do this because we can't protect our company and our customers can't protect themselves. And the product teams were like, okay. And so they started building stuff in, right? And you see this amazing stuff with Windows 10, all of this new telemetry and this new technology, you know, ATP, all the advanced threat protection stuff going out. Mm -hmm. And well, all of that came from our work of, Hey, we can't do our job and protect our company and our customers if you don't start doing this in the product. Well, and I want to ask about this because I, I know, you know, with Microsoft, I know the biggest thing for a while was secure coding practices and, and trying to, to eliminate yep. the potential for bugs. And that's kind of its own thing. But aside from that, I mean, I, I think probably one of the stronger criticisms Microsoft gets these days is that they're not doing enough to enable the protection of their customers when most of the world depends on Windows in some way or another. Yep. And, and it sounds like, I mean, you guys were obviously doing threat hunting and it sounds like you started at some point to establish a better relationship with those product teams so yep. you could take what you were learning and transfer it to them and get them more interested in i guess we've seen the benefits of some of that in terms of like the protective controls um, yep. but what about like detective controls and things like that i know i know some of the things that i think about often are are the fact that there's so much not enabled by default on yep. you know, windows endpoints in terms of logging and i think of things like sysmon yep. and you know, why isn't sysmon for the love of pete built in and turned on automatically so it is and, right if you look at if you look at it now right a lot of what sysmon was doing is now built into windows 10 mm -hmm. um and you can it is it is na uh, not all of it but a lot of it is native yeah well, um, well, i, I guess so the, that, i guess the is question is is you know it, why why necessarily did you think it took so long for this to, oh, yeah. to start happening so it came to cloud, right? It was it was the cloud first idea that that I think did it, and I think that's really what's happening to a lot of the companies is they're realizing that if um, that cloud is based on trust, nobody's going to use your products in a hybrid or cloud based environment if they can't trust you. And part of the part of trust is secure is being able to secure it. And um, and so I think it was that big shift to the cloud where people realized that. Um, Tr that security and trust go together and that trust is a foundation of what makes 
what is going to make people select your product. And therefore, from a business perspective, our products have to be more secure and more defensible. And that was, I think, the fundamental philosophical shift that caused all of that to occur. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess I know Amazon calls this like the the shared responsibility model, where where they take on some of the responsibility of this. And yep. I mean, I guess whether you use that terminology or not, that's what a lot of other people are doing. So it's almost so, the fact yeah, that they're uh, being forced a, to defend their own endpoints. Yeah, it, and it depends, though, right? It's like so. Of course, you have very different, right? It, Amazon is infrastructure as a service. You know, Microsoft is platform as a service, right? Mm-hmm. So those are from a from a security perspective, those are very different, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Where I can run services in Microsoft and they're patching everything underneath me and I don't have to worry about that, right? Um, where if I'm running my own VMs in, in, in AWS, I have to worry about patching those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a very, you know, that shared responsibility is, is a mix between what kind of service you're running. So. Yeah, well, and it's, just, it's different ratios of responsibility, I guess. Yeah, at that, at that exactly point. right. So it's, it's not yep. a black or white thing. Okay, that, that makes sense. So um, did you, I mean, I guess overall, I mean, did you enjoy your time at Microsoft? Do you feel like, I mean, you talked, about, you talked about your time at DoD and talked about your time at other places and how you grew and got all this different world perspective. Yep. I mean, what about Microsoft? Same kind of deal? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I like to say that DoD was a large enterprise and a global enterprise. Um, and obviously working with international partners, I kind of got the sense of things. I like to say that uh, Microsoft is a great stopping off point after the government um, because it's, it's, it's close enough to the government that it feels comfortable in the bureaucracy, but it's not so close where you, you also don't understand the private sector approaches. Um, but here's why I joined Microsoft, right? I joined Microsoft because I love I loved protecting DoD. I love protecting our country. And, um, and that was great. But honestly, what I realized in DoD was that DoD doesn't actually hold the security answer. In fact, it's only a really small part of it. Um, I mean, actually, a really small part of it. Um, and that uh, intelligence and offensive operations, which is really what DoD has kind of in in its it's like you know, specific realm defensive operations not much right it doesn't really have authority outside of dod and maybe a little bit of critical infrastructure but even then it's more of an advisement role so really outside of protecting its own enterprise dod doesn't defend anything um and so um really if you want to go defend people you can't do it at dod <laughs> as much as everyone likes to talk about it let's like, that's the real that's that's where the rubber meets the road um and so in and so what I really wanted to do was Microsoft gave me the opportunity you know John Lambert is also another huge mentor of mine and somebody that I, I love working with um and John basically was like hey do you want to protect the world and I was like that sounds kind of cool. What does that mean? And he's like, he's like, look, we have the largest VoIP platform in the world, which I'm using right now, Skype, right? Um, we have the largest desktop and server, you know, deployment in the world. Um, you know, we um, we have the second largest cloud in the world. We've got the um, uh, largest gaming platform in the world. You look at this stuff. You're like, we got the large, uh, second largest consumer email service in the world, Hotmail. You know, we've got the largest enterprise email service in the world, O365. You're like, you look at this, and you're like, they actually do touch over a billion people a day. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 at micro, and, and you'll even think about it. You're like, no, actually, they touch every internet user or, or user a day. Well, if yeah, you think about how I all love, the services interact with each other, right? I love, I love hear how because I think a lot of people would hear that and it would just scare the hell out of them. And they're like, no, I don't want any part of that. But I like the fact that you just embraced that and you know, that was a challenge you really wanted. Yeah, and, and as a threat hunter in Microsoft, you don't limit yourself to a single place because the threats don't limit themselves to a, a, a single place. So the philosophy at Microsoft is you go where the hunt you you go where the hunt takes you, right? Mm-hmm. Which is if the hunt's in SharePoint, you go with you know Matt Swan, who's another absolutely brilliant person over in SharePoint, mm-hmm. right? Who's if you haven't watched his presentations, do it. Like you want to talk about what looking you know, doing stuff at scale looks like. Matt Swan's amazing. Um, 
and how they're doing data science at, you know, global scales of data, right? Petabytes of data. Um, you know, he's probably one of the few at Microsoft who's actually talking about it and sharing some of those, you know, secrets openly of like, how do you do petabytes of data data science? Um, and, you know, then you go over and you, you go Xbox and you're like, oh my God, you know, you got hackers who are using Xbox to social engineer people, right? Um, and then they use that to get into Hotmail, right? And then they do that and they get into, you know, then they get their passwords, right? And then they'll go into their Windows boxes, right? And they'll start dumping stuff off there. You're like, a, a threat hunter, you know, you can't silo yourself. Um, and so what I love to say is that Microsoft is like a whole bunch of fiefdoms, right? It's, tw it's 12 kind of individual business units who own and operate their own business. Um, they operate their own networks in a lot of ways. Uh, they operate their own production space. Um, and so you, as a threat hunter, you have to facilitate relationships with these people. You have to understand their environment. You have to be able to get data out. You have to be able to hunt. You have to be able to work with these groups really well. And so um, and so Microsoft was an amazing opportunity. I I used a lot of my DOD skills of how do I work internationally with partners? Um, you know, how do you build partnerships, operational partnerships? How do you work with teams who have different authorities and stuff like this? And I think a lot of those skills that I built in DoD lend, lent itself really well to Microsoft. And uh, how do you work in this massive global environment? Um, and then the cool part is, like I said, at Microsoft, you're touching, like, I, I love to say I was literally protecting a billion customers a day, right? We wow. were taking actions that were protecting billions of customers. Not many people can say that. No. And, yeah. um, and I loved it. The other part of that taught me, though, was that mistakes in InfoSec are huge. Right. And, and that's where I get a lot of my realization that if you, if I made a mistake, like just like a bad Microsoft patch, oh, my God. Right. That, look at the damage that does. Right. That's just a great example that most people are used to, that if one of these companies like a Google, like an Amazon, like a Microsoft, you know, so forth, if they make a small mistake, it is a big, big deal. Right. It is hundreds of millions of dollars lost. Right to the economies worldwide, um, maybe even more if it's really bad. And so from an InfoSec perspective, I learned accuracy matters, right? In that in small companies, great, you can, you know, uh, a great, okay, accidentally, you know, you blacklisted 192.168.1.1 and you screwed up for a couple hours, right? Mm -hmm. And you may may have lost, okay, a million dollars. And that might have been really bad for you. But, you know, if I did that for everyone worldwide, it's not a good day for anybody, right? So, um, and so what I learned is that InfoSec has to take accuracy more seriously um, and that scale matters. Um, and that um, if we want to scale our our ability to do things, we have to take our accuracy uh, we have to take our accuracy more seriously. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about Cloud Shark. I love Cloud Shark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web based, so it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster. And it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. 
I also want to tell you about Squirrel. Squirrel is an investigation platform, and I really like it because it operates kind of how analysts thinks. It's built on a graph database model, so once you define your model, you have the ability to traverse objects and entities in your network and the relationships that exist between them. And as I know and as you know, all investigations are about uncovering relationships. I like Squirrel because it makes this really easily done. It is visual, so it's working like you think, and that's a unique thing. Not many tools do that. I'm a big fan of Squirrel. You should check them out. It's a really solid investigation and hunting platform, and you can learn more about them at squirrel, S-Q-R-R-L dot com. Let's get back to Sergio. Yeah, kind of a theme, I think, of, of our conversation and your work has is, is been that you want to do work that matters. And I think that's very evident across everything from what you studied in school to working for the DoD and Microsoft and so on, and even what you're doing in Dragos now. Yeah. Um, now, I think some of the work you do that, that maybe matters uh, – even much more than the other things are, are just tremendously as important in this world as what you're doing with global emancipation network. Um, yeah. And so can you tell me a little bit about kind of that, how it came to be and how you're kind of fusing the other things you've done in your career with the hunt to the fight to yeah. end human trafficking? Yeah. So, um, so human tra So first of all, I like to give people a sense of why human trafficking matters and why it's important, because I think a lot of people recognize uh, emotionally with the problem. Um, but I, I will I like to uh, in our space, in the in the nonprofit space, we call that development porn. Um, right. Which is that um, it's that it, it's that it's that poor African child on the TV. Right. Um, and, and they call it development porn. It's that it's that image that you get that emotionally ties you to a problem. And um, and that's great from a donor perspective, but it's not great from an understanding the problem perspective. So, so, um, so what I want to tell you and your listeners, you know, um, are, I, I want to give you more of an intellectual sense of the problem, which is, um, there is somewhere between 20, uh, 25 million and 46 million people, uh, currently enslaved. Um, that, that, so first of all, that's a big number and most people can't even rationalize that. The thing that you should recognize from a data science perspective is that is yes, a margin of over a hundred percent error right so we don't even know within a margin of a hundred percent how many people are currently enslaved um and so um that should show you that we have a massive data problem here the, the next thing we know is that the human trafficking is the second largest criminal enterprise in the world um behind drugs um and ahead of guns it has eclipsed right uh, wow. guns and it is now or arms in general right um because there's a lot of a lot of things being trafficked on the black market from an arms perspective um but yeah so that is it is the second largest criminal enterprise in the world it receives a minuscule amount of funding compared to drugs and guns um and yet it's it's destroying the lives of 46 million people currently right now um so we just have a big problem Right. Um, intellectually, that's I just want to kind of put those into into the sense um, here. Now, here's a sense of what we're trying to do to it. Right. Which is there are only 66,000, 66,000 victims identified a year. Um, that's not rescued. That's identified. The rescued number, we don't even know, but it's probably on the order of about 20,000. Wow. So we're really only rescuing about a third of the victims that we can identify. So really, we're only pulling 20,000 people out of trafficking out of somewhere between, you know, 20 and 45 million people. So we're doing nothing. Literally, the world is doing nothing about this problem. Um, that is what's that's what we know. Um, and, um, and so what's, so what are we doing about it? Right. What's, what, what's a new approach, right? 
Well, first of all, um, we're taking a kill chain approach, right? So anyone who's listening to this podcast probably knows what the kill chain is. Um, and so we're, we actually have a kill chain for trafficking, right? And so we're actually publishing a paper next month, um, an academic paper on the kill chain of trafficking, right? That there is a process to trafficking and that if you want to actually counter trafficking, just like you counter hackers, right? Um, you have to think of it in terms of process disruption and that it's not just um, how do you stop recruitment? It's not just how do you uh, prevent exploitation? It's not just how do you rescue somebody and how do you res uh, restore a victim to dignity? It's, it's how do you do all of the things together in a joint way that you're actually going to have impact? Because right now, basically, all we're trying to do are little bits and pieces here and there, but never coordinated operations. So um, a lot of people, what a lot of people don't realize also is that People read all the time about trafficking busts, right? There were some big ones in the South recently. Um, and so those are great, right? And the police usually do those because they go into things like massage parlors, brothels, and stuff like that. And they, they pull mostly, mostly these women out. Um, although, honestly, from the numbers, we think more men are being trafficked than women because labor trafficking is actually bigger than sex trafficking worldwide. Huh. Um, but, we, but we really even don't know whether that's true. Um, but we do think that there are more men trafficked than women trafficked. Um, that's a hypothesis. Um, and so if you think about it, that's one of the first things we got to do is think of this in terms of a process, right? And that, that human traffickers are operating in a process. And that's just, and again, that's like from a, from a cyber perspective, that's what we're bringing to the problem. Um, the next thing that we're bringing is that just like every other business, especially every criminal enterprise, traffickers are using the internet. Right. Um, so they're advertising for jobs that are not really jobs um, to get people to become labor, labor trafficked. Um, they're advertising for smuggling. Right. They are actively advertising in the Middle East uh, and in Central America, um, you know, for to find uh, to find services um, and, and coyotes to smuggle them across the border, which really ultimately just turns them into trafficking um, victims. Um, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of smuggling operations end up being trafficking operations. Um, we call that polycriminality, right? Where one criminal enterprise basically um, basically interacts with a lot of other criminal enterprises. Um, and so what we're basically doing is using that against them, right? So we're using all of these capabilities of data science um, and digital forensics and digital investigations that we're bringing from the cybersecurity space um, into human trafficking because a lot of human trafficking is being enabled on the internet. And so basically, if we can uncover victims, if we can uncover their, 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 uh, you know, we're, so we're using data science to uncover people being moved, finding their geographical movement route. So it's like up and down the 95 corridor, uh, across I-10, um, you know, places where you think, but where are they stopping? Are they, you know, are they focusing on truck stops? Um, and that's where we're starting to illuminate all of this data. And it sounds, and that way, is, is this like a lot of human intelligence? It sounds like that would be a big component of what you're doing. So, so yes, it's just like it's just like in hackerspace, right? Where we love to talk about um, if you don't understand what the offensive side is doing, you'll never really be a good defender. And it's the same idea in human trafficking, which is if you don't understand what the uh, if you don't understand how the traffickers are operating, if you don't talk to traffickers, right? Um, if you don't interact with that side, if you don't get victim stories, you'll never really understand how to solve the problem on the on the defensive side. And so it's the same analogy. Um, and so, yes, so there's going to be some humans involved. Um, it's a lot of stuff. We do we do photo recognition and photo analysis. Um, a lot of companies donate a lot of very cutting edge stuff to us. Uh, we do video. Um, a lot of uh, sex trafficker, uh, sex trafficked victims are now being exploited over webcams. Wow. Um, so kick uh, Skype, things like that. 
Um, uh, Reddit is actually a big place also for there's a lot of uh, trafficking being done on Reddit. Um, obviously, everyone knows Craigslist and Backpage. Uh, Backpage is obviously a big story recently. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so we're using a lot of that space. Um, but it's I would say it's the same in the digital human space, right, which is um, we use our offensive knowledge, our understanding of offensive operations, our interviews with hackers um, to understand how they're doing their work in order to, to, uh, to inform the defensive space. And so really what we're trying to do is is really collect actual truth data, right, in this space. And like I said, what we're trying to do is focus on three things. Identify victims, um, identify traffickers, and then inform policy and operations, right, which is how can we get policymakers to make the right policy so that we can have a real impact rather than the impact we're having now? And how can we um, – and how can we um, – uh, improve the effectiveness and efficiency of it operations. There are over 1,500 oper- uh, there are over 1,500 nonprofits worldwide working on counter trafficking. Um, they first of all they never talk to each other, so it's just like the cybersecurity space. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, they they don't right. So we're trying to enable that. We're using a lot of our understanding of how we how we share threat data in cybersecurity with how we share intelligence of of traffickers in the non tra- on the on the trafficking space. Um, and so we're using a lot of data science. Uh, we're doing nat- uh, natural language processing. So Recorded Future is a huge, pro- uh, uh, huge partner for us. Um, we're using Microsoft Cognitive Services um, to do natural language processing and all this to figure out, you know, when people are using emojis, what do those emojis mean? Um, there's crypto languages and all of this, right? So they're, you know, they use words to mean other things. Um, you know, uh, it's it's kind of fascinating. So um, so all of this is being applied. <clears throat> all of this cool technology. Um, and so we work with a lot of cool companies like Dark Owl and um, and stuff like that who are working in the dark, uh, the deep uh, dark web space. Um, basically, what we're, we're trying to do is we're trying to take these organizations like prosecutors' offices, sheriffs' offices, um, uh, community, you know, police, uh, nonprofits. We're trying to try to figure out how can they're trying to do they're trying to save lives. We we aren't we aren't out there saving lives, right? We want to be a small nonprofit focused on delivering intelligence and tools. Um, cutting edge tools from the, the technology space to these people, right? Who who need all of their all the help we can get. So instead of them spending money, you know, to save 100 people's lives, which is great, but how can we get them to spend the same amount of money to to to, to um, you know to to go get you know rescue a million, right? Right. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, hey, right now it's twenty thousand, right? People being rescued. How about next year? How can we get them to two hundred thousand rescued? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and I um, guess I guess you have this concept and, and, and the concept of applying like data science and, and, and things like that to, to biz, traditional business is is not new. But I think there's certainly an untapped space and, and all kinds of potential for, for this problem and similar problems to apply those concepts to nonprofit and human services. Oh, uh, God, yeah. of, of course, it's much harder to do because of funding and, and, and yep. things like that. No technology. No technologist goes into the nonprofit space, man. You know that as well as I do. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think you, you are one of the few people uh, who can uh, understand the plot that, that that is, you and me, that, that understand how that, that works. It's uh, uh, yeah. deceptively frustrating. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, and and I yeah. also think it's important for the listeners too to realize. And you quoted a really big number as far as the people uh, who are victims of human trafficking. And I think a lot of people's natural inclination would be to go, "Oh, well, that's just in the third world and these third world countries and all oh, these things." And that's that couldn't be further from the truth, right? No, no, not at all. Um, now it doesn't happen a lot in the U.S. The U.S. is primarily so we break all the countries up in the world into um, source, transit, and destination countries for tra- for trafficking. Um, the U.S. is only really a des- uh, is is a huge destination country, but it really only is a source for about three percent of trafficking worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, 
most of the sources of trafficking are in India, um, are in Southeast Asia. Um, these are honestly, you know, these are not really developing countries. I mean, you know, India hasn't been a developing country for a long time. I mean, parts of it are, but, you know, it's a very big, you know, economic powerhouse in the world. I'm um, saying with a lot of Southeast Asia, right? Um, so I think that's a really old 50s and 60s way of looking at the at the world. But, um, you know, but honestly, like these people are being moved into countries like Europe, you know, very developing countries like Germany. Right. Um, you're seeing huge amounts of Syrian refugees being trafficked through Turkey uh, into um, into the into Europe. So, yeah. So honestly, a lot of these a lot of these people are you know, a lot of these people are being um, sourced from what most people would consider out of the way places, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and so forth. Um, most people don't need most people need to realize, though, that trafficking by definition is the uh, exploitation of a vulnerability of a human for the gain of another human being. Um, and so by definition, there has to be a vulnerability. Um, in the U.S., we see huge numbers of, of homeless and transgendered people being trafficked in the U.S. because they are highly vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. um, outside the U.S., um, wherever there is basically human or natural caused disasters, right? So civil war, um, uh, unrest, um, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, stuff like that, we see massive amounts of trafficking out of there. Um, and so, honestly, trafficking follows human misery, right? It is a symptom of human misery. People wouldn't be in these situations if they weren't in a horrible situation. I like to tell stories, right, where pe sometimes people think about trafficking, they're like, oh, these parents are selling their children into trafficking. Okay, so that's one story people like to tell. Let me tell you how this really works. These are parents, right, who are in these situations, and, and some people think, oh, this is a cultural problem. This isn't a cultural problem. There is no culture in the world who accepts parents selling their children into slavery. None. So if there's anyone who thinks that, you need to get your mind out of that, right? That is not in a cultural, that's not a cultural practice. Um, what you need to realize is that these parents, most of the time, and these children are stuck in humanitarian camps in like Turkey, right? where they're not being well protected, where the rape um, statistics are over 80% for women, um, where it'll happen multiple days, you know, multiple times a day for young children. Um, they are in a horrible situation that the people who are listening right now can't imagine. Um, and so what's happening is that these people, these, these uh, smugglers who are really traffickers, are coming to these parents and saying, hey, I can get your children out of this situation and I can place them with a family who will give them food and shelter Right. And they will do domestic work. Right. And that's fine. But they're going to be safe. They're not going to get raped. They don't have to worry about where their meals are coming from. These parents are doing the best they can. And they will almost all the time accept that offer. Right. And they will sometimes pay. Right. To have these children taken. Right. Sometimes small amounts, sometimes large amounts to be smuggled out of these camps and taken to places where the parents are thinking that they're doing better. And honestly, sometimes the traffic and I hate to say it, but I, I am a true realist. Sometimes the trafficking situation as bad as it is, is better than the situation that they're in. And so um, it's all because evil is not is, is there's evil is not binary. Right. Um, there are spectrums of badness in the world as much as most people don't realize. Um and so, um, you know, that's the reality, right? That it is, it is literally, trafficking is nothing more than a symptom of misery. And um, so I like to tell that story because that's sometimes a thought people have in their minds about these parents selling their children into trafficking. When they, when they realize what the situation really looks like, I think you get a better appreciation for what trafficking fundamentally is.
Wow. Now, I think there are a lot of people listening who would be very interested in, in taking, not unlike you have, taking their skills and applying it to this problem or some other similar type of problem. What would you recommend to those people? How do they, how do you take, you know, threat hunting and, and analytics type skill and how do you, how do you approach problems like this? How do you learn how to do some of these more targeted specific human service type things with those skills? Yeah. So, um, first of all, get involved in an organization. It doesn't matter which one. They're all going to have technology issues. They're all going, I mean, something I've learned is if you can just patch computers and manage somebody's IT services as much as you love to be a threat hunter, if you can just use your technology skills to help a nonprofit be better, that is helping the world, right? So don't think that just because you're a threat hunter, you have to be a threat hunter to somebody. You have skills that are much beyond where most of these nonprofits are. Um, so, so first of all, as you know, be 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 a little bit more broad and critical thinking, you know, creative thinking about how you can use your skills in your background. Um, most nonprofits don't have anybody technical in their organization, so you will be generally the only technical person in the organization. Exper- extru- um, so, just get involved. Something local, something global. Um, get involved in it. Homeless shelters need it, right? Um, ask them if they need any technology support. What you'll find is that, yes, you're going to start off probably as an IT person because they have no idea how to use technology to solve their problem. But very quickly, you're going to start seeing, oh, they're using spreadsheets to track people coming in and out of the homeless shelter to register people. What if we figure out if we can get a, a, registra- a, you know, a registration system or you know maybe Salesforce donated to us, which can happen, right? And how can we make that system automated so we'll understand how people are coming in and out? When are they coming in and out are they how often are they coming in and out um are they experiencing the other other issues that we can help them with right and how can i make the you know how can i make these services more effective um that is changing the world right and and that is like come in don't come in thinking i want to come in and do threat hunting and data analytics for you that is a wrong approach come in as a hey i want to help you i have technology skills what is the thing you know right now that needs technology whatever you think that means and and what do you need right now and let me start you with doing that i will guarantee that if you are an intelligent person you will start seeing a myriad of problems that you can start helping with but don't come in there talking about data science and analytics because these people don't understand what you're talking about um so come in just as a i can help you with technology do you need your do you need help managing your workstations right um don't think yourself below doing anything right as the technology director for my nonprofit, i spend a lot of my time just working on basic technology spinning up vms and patching them and stuff like that and that guess what as much as i love being a hunter and a you know data scientist those are the, that's just the work that has to be done and um and so i help you know people with that and so i think just that's the key is be creative that you are a smart, intelligent person with a very specific skill set that can help almost every nonprofit worldwide. So go find one that you love working with, whether it's global or local, and go just approach them and just go do something. And you will find very quickly that you will love that organization and get to know them and you get to know their problems better. That's fantastic advice. Well, Sergio, thank you so much for this conversation. I think I think this was enlightening. I, I learned a lot. I, I'm, I'm going to leave this conversation feeling incredibly motivated to go change the world. So that's always please good, do, Chris. Good I need everybody out there change the world, man. That's what we're that's what we're all about. If we're not doing that, I don't know what you're doing in your life. <laughs> there we go. All right, Sergio, thank you so much, my friend, and uh, you have a nice rest of your day. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed what Sergio had to say, and I think there's a lot to be gained from that. I think there's a lot to be talked about in terms of the value of getting purpose out of your work. And I think in information security, it's really easy to struggle to find that purpose. But I think Sergio's career is kind of, um, and I don't know if he would agree with this or not, but I think it's kind of a... 
uh, kind of a story in pursuing work that matters. And I think that's important. And different work is going to matter to different people in different ways, of course. But I just think there's a lot to learn from there. And I know um, when I talked with Sergio, I left our conversation feeling very inspired, like I was ready to, to go conquer the world. Um, and hopefully you got something similar out of that as well. So if you enjoyed what Sergio had to say, please take some time to thank him. You can find him on Twitter. His handle is at CNO Analysis, at CNO Analysis, uh, and let him know you appreciate him taking the time to be on the podcast. As always, I appreciate your feedback. I'm at ChrisSanders88 on Twitter, and I'd love to hear about some ideas for guests you would like to see on here. They don't have to be someone who's a really big name or someone everybody knows. Uh, that's not really what we're about here. We're about telling good stories. And I want to talk to anybody who has a good story to tell about kind of their path to information security and through it that other people will maybe get something out of. So that's going to do it for us. Make sure to check out my Cuckoo's Egg course if you're interested in an information security introductory course. It's free. It's online. It's in the evening times on Thursday nights. We have our third session next Thursday. You can find that on my blog at chrissanders.org, or uh, you can follow along on Twitter with hashtag Cuckoo's Egg. I hope to see you in there. With that said, that's it for us. As always, it's a beautiful day to catch up.